Pop quiz. What do dinosaur feathers, 18th century European art, and cancerous tumors have in common? Believe it or not, the answer is that they are all somewhat related to squid, cuttlefish, and octopus ink. If you don't believe me, this episode is for you. Welcome to Incredible, a Cephala podcast about ink. This is your host, Maya Juman. Stay tuned to learn more about the weird and wonderful world of biological ink, its functions, its evolutionary history, and its human applications. Let's start with a brief introduction. I'm a senior at Yale, majoring in ecology and evolutionary biology. I first became interested in cephalopods through my job at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. I work in the invertebrate paleontology department there, cataloging and digitizing fossils of ancient cephalopods known as ammonites. Cephalopods are mollusks with well-developed heads and tentacles. They are remarkably intelligent, as evidenced by many octopi attempting to escape from aquarium tanks, oftentimes successfully. Of course, they're beautiful too, from vibrant iridescent cuttlefish to the swirling shells of their extinct ammonite cousins. But today, we'll be focusing on their unique ability to produce ink. Not all cephalopods make ink, but squid, octopi, and cuttlefish do. This subset of cephalopods are known as coleoids. So what is the function of this inking behavior? Some have speculated that it originally evolved as a mechanism for excretion, but it's now linked to the nervous system. In modern cephalopods, ink can serve at least two distinct functions. Some species, like Caribbean reef squid, use ink as a visual alarm cue. When a predator approaches, an individual may squirt ink, which alerts other nearby squid that there is a threat, thus triggering escape behavior. Ink also serves as a personal defense mechanism for coleoids. Creating a large, dark cloud in the water is an effective way of obscuring a predator's vision, which then allows the octopus or squid to dart away safely. It's kind of like if you walked into a room and someone, you know, uh, took a big blanket and whooshed it up in front of you, it would would startle you. That small amount of time may be enough for a prey item just to be gone. That's the voice of an invertebrate zoology expert. To find out some more about collecting and preserving inky cephalopods, I decided I had to check out some Peabody specimens for myself. My name is Eric Lazo Wassum, and my title is Senior Collections Manager for the Division of Invertebrate Zoology. Great, thank you. Mr. Lazo Wassum was kind enough to give me a tour of the collection. He led me down an aisle lined with countless jars of cephalopods floating in ethanol, from enormous giant Pacific octopi to teeny tiny tentacled specimens. These are so cute, the little the octopus, if that's what that is. Yep, that's, that's, a, so that's, a, that's a tiny little one. Oh. And, um, and in fact... While exploring the shelves, I heard plenty of fun stories about collecting cephalopods. This is a, the equivalent of a giant Pacific octopus, but it's found in the Southern Ocean. The largest one we collected it was 27 kilos. Oh my god! It was absolutely huge. And we threw it over the side of the, of the boat because we're not going to preserve that. And the, uh, the Russian crew were actually very upset with us because they wanted to eat it. Oh. And so um, later on, under the huge pile of invertebrates, a much smaller but still very good-sized uh, octopus was, was found in there. And this guy, Constantine, who was like six foot four and probably 350 pounds, I saw him hacking the thing up mm-hmm. to eat. Well, 
someone who was in his good favor um, convinced him to give me uh, an arm. So I've got an arm, and then somewhere else I've got, uh, in, a, in one of these buckets, I've got a, a beak uh, that I, I fished out of the buckle mass. So, um, cool. so that, you know, I collected... I was slightly disappointed to find out that Mr. Lazo Wassum himself has never been sprayed with ink while trying to collect an octopus. Usually the octopus that I've seen, like when I'm when I was snorkeling or scuba diving, were generally uh, comfortable enough in their movements that they could just swim away. And I, I was never in a position where I was startling them so much that they were um, that they that they would ink out. And when cephalopods are collected and preserved, the ink sac is generally not removed, he explained. If you dissect ethanol-preserved specimens, fondly referred to as pickles, you might notice the ink sac, but it's hardly a conspicuous feature once the specimen is preserved. I've never, in the, in the preparation of squid for the collections or for uh, consumption, because I've, I've cleaned a lot of them, you know, now you buy them and they, they actually come cleaned often, but back in the old days, they didn't. You just got these whole squid. You had, to, you had to learn how to clean them. And you clean them, and I don't really remember coming across much in the way of, of, um, of ink. Okay, so maybe cephalopod ink is less obvious in specimens than I'd imagined. Walking into the invertebrate zoology collections, I expected to encounter jars of ethanol stained with inky fluid, or perhaps visible dark blobs inside translucent specimens. But just like in life, the preserved colloids were doing a great job of hiding their secret weapon. There's a lot we still don't understand about ink, including its complicated chemical composition. Ink contains melanin, which is the pigment responsible for the dark color. It's also found in hair, skin, and feathers, all across the animal kingdom. In addition to melanin, colloid ink contains a variety of other molecules, including amino acids, polysaccharides, and even metals. The functions of many of these elements are unclear. However, we do know that ink originates from two different organs inside the cephalopod. One is the ink sac, where the melanin comes from. The other is known as the funnel gland, which produces mucus that is mixed with the contents of the ink sac before it is released from the animal's body. Thus, inking is a complicated and well-developed system. I was curious about when cephalopods invented this brilliant defense mechanism. To investigate, we need to take a trip back a couple hundred million years. Luckily, what this really means for me is just crossing the Peabody hallway to visit the invertebrate paleontology collection. So, I want to look in here first just to see if I can find the sampled colloids. This is Susan Butts, I'm Senior Collections Manager for Invertebrate Paleontology at the Peabody Museum. She's also my boss. Thank you so much for yeah, making no the problem. time. I promise I'll get back to work as quickly as possible. <laughs> okay, let me show you a couple. As I know from my three years of working in this department, colioids like squid and octopi are rarely completely preserved in the fossil record. Their bodies are composed mostly of soft tissue, which doesn't typically fossilize. Other cephalopods have more luck. Extinct ammonites, for example, had hard chambered shells that are often preserved. But lemonites resembled squid and had ink sacs too, but also had more developed internal shells for support. So their hard parts frequently appear in the fossil record. Paleontology is mostly concerned with hard parts of specimens. So we've got shells, corals, skeletons, um, microscopic shells, exoskeletons, and not soft parts. 
it's basically almost unfathomable that a squid would be preserved. Um, and when we do have preservation of squid, we have preservation of hard parts of squid and squid relatives, um, which is like an internal support. So soft tissue in itself is very rare. I would say probably less than 3% of all of our specimens show any trace of soft material, and probably it's like less than 1%. So we end up with a long record of cephalopods through evolutionary history, but not a ton of cephalopod soft tissue, and that includes ink sacs. However, occasionally, under the right conditions, these soft parts can be preserved. That's how we know that cephalopods were producing ink at least as far back as the Carboniferous period, which was roughly 350 to 300 million years ago. Some of the best examples are from the more recent Mesozoic, 250 to 65 million years ago. like this Jurassic-era squid specimen from Germany's Solenhofen limestone formation. This is like a really fine-grained limestone um, in an inhospitable environment, so probably hypersaline lagoon uh, with low oxygen and a super low energy environment. That's where you get these really fine-grained limestones, and so there's just really great preservation. This flattened specimen has the shape of the squid's entire body preserved. Even the tentacles are visible. Most importantly, there's a dark, blobby shape in the center of the body, contrasting the lighter-colored limestone behind it. Yep, you guessed it. It's the ink sac. The connected ink duct is also visible. It's surprising that the dark color of the ink is so well-preserved, considering that this fossil is around 150 million years old. Dr. Butts explains that it has to do with the properties of the melanin, which make it fairly resistant to degradation. And of course, it's pigment so it has a really high preservation potential itself, like it's not affected by light and UV, um, so it's really stable. So while soft tissue preservation in general is incredibly rare, when it does occur with an ink sac, you have a decent shot at melanin preservation. In fact, for this reason, squid ink melanin played a crucial role in an exciting Yale research project about 10 years ago. Dr. Derek Briggs, co-author of the resulting paper, is a professor of geology and geophysics and curator of invertebrate paleontology at the Peabody. His research focuses on exceptionally preserved fossils. In 2006, one of his graduate students, Jakob Winter, made an important discovery while looking at fossilized ink sacs under a scanning electron microscope. You can see the little uh, globules which is essentially how melanin accumulates in ink sacs, and that's uh, beautifully preserved in fossil squid ink sacs and also in the living squids. So he realized that melanin had what we'd call a very high preservation potential. And then he also, of course, realized that melanin was a, an important molecule in, in explaining color in fossil vertebrates, like your black hair, for example. Um, so he decided we should look at melanin in fossil feathers. And previously, the little sausage-shaped bodies that are melanosomes in fossil feathers were interpreted um, by me and others as bacteria. Once they confirmed that these sausage-shaped bodies were actually melanosomes, they turned their focus to dinosaur coloration. And then, of course, uh, the holy grail became 
painting dinosaurs by numbers, which was what I <laughs> described it as. So at that stage, um, lots of these feathered dinosaurs were coming out of China. So with Rick Prom, um, we got a National Geographic grant to go to Beijing and uh, look at some of the feathers, the feathered dinosaurs they have there. And we got a specimen called, of a taxon called Anchiornis, which is a, a late Jurassic dinosaur. Um, and we were able to, we were allowed in the Beijing National Museum to sample various parts of the feather outlines in this specimen. And uh, we discovered that there were differences in the size and shape and the nature of the packing of the melanosomes in different parts of the feathers on the plumage. The team then compared these fossilized melanosomes to melanosome packing in modern bird feathers, where the colors are of course known. Each melanosome shape, size, and arrangement pattern corresponds to a unique color. They discovered that the dinosaur they were working on, Anchiornis, had white and black feathers with a crest of red feathers on its head. So Dr. Briggs and his colleagues became the first scientists to publish a definitive description of dinosaur color. As you can imagine, their method revolutionized the way we reconstruct colors from the distant past. The, the original epiphany that Jakob had based on the squids has gone on, I mean, went on almost immediately to be, I mean, the first thing we did was apply it to, to birds right. or to bird feathers. Um, so the, the process has gone on from there. And I mean, my, my particular interest in it was getting it to you know, ground truth in the approach and uh, creating the first reconstruction of a coloured uh, feathered dinosaur. And then beyond that, lots of other labs have, have taken it further. So it's become a, quite a, a major way of thinking about these things and it, it created a whole lot of interest and excitement over a long period of time. And the first time I heard about this study and its origins in cephalopod ink, my mind was blown. Who would have thought that a dark blob on a squid fossil would help unlock one of the greatest mysteries of paleontology? Apparently we have a lot to learn from coleoids. Still, people have known about the inking behavior of these species for millennia. As a result, humans have found many innovative ways to use squid and cuttlefish ink over time. I decided to delve into three of these uses, one from the past, one from the present, and one from, potentially, the future. That's how, on a rainy Tuesday morning in November, I found myself in a conservation lab on the third floor of the Yale Center for British Art. I had no idea I would be trying um, to write with uh, sepia ink today, so that's yeah. very exciting. Awesome. Yeah. Cuttlefish ink has been used to manufacture writing and drawing ink since at least the 18th century. In fact, some sources suggest that citizens of ancient Egypt used cuttlefish ink to stain stone. This ink is generally referred to as sepia ink, named after a genus of cuttlefish. If the word sepia is making you think of artsy, vintage-looking Instagram filters, you're not wrong. This visual effect was inspired by the brown tones of cuttlefish ink. But preparing sepia ink is not as simple as just slicing a cuttlefish open and dipping a pen into its guts. Sepia ink, making it is really complicated. You have to cook it with alkali very smelly, cook it, and then you have to precipitate it using really strong acid, and that, and a lot of rinsing and filtering. And That's Soyeon Choi, cooking. the head conservator for Works on Paper at the YCBA. 
She explained that sepia is a truly mysterious ink and that not many artists use it nowadays, let alone concoct their own ink from raw cuttlefish, which Miss Choi has actually done herself. Sepia is so mysterious, in fact, that it's difficult to tell which 18th century European works are using sepia versus other naturally derived pigments like iron gall ink or bister ink. Most are just labeled as, quote, brown ink, and the only way to differentiate sepia from other inks is to use a fancy wide-range spectrometer. Are there any works with sepia ink like on display here at the YCPA that you know of? There's no single drawing in our collection that's positively identified as a sepia. Isn't that amazing? Wow. There's no one that who could actually positively prove that uh, any of the, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is that the same for the art gallery also? Yeah, and the same for the Metropolitan Museum. Or <sighs> so everyone wow. just describe it as brown ink. I see. That's the state. Miss Choi pulled out a cardboard box labeled Ink Making Stuff and placed it on a lab table facing the window, which overlooked Drizzly Chapel Street. Oh, wow. Inside was an assortment of rattling bottles and jars containing fragments of dried cuttlefish ink sac, sepia ink purchased from a British art store, and various other pigments and solvents. I dipped a brush into the bottle of sepia ink and wrote my name in swirling brown letters. It's actually a little bit more watery than I expected. Like, I thought it was going to be more, like, highly pigmented and darker. Mm. Yeah. But I had to, like, dip it twice to mm. even finish my name, yeah. which is short. And... Miss Choi explained that this might be because the pigment is not finely ground, so there's more separation between the liquid solvent and the ink particles. At one point, she invited me to sniff the open bottle of ink. I was taken aback. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. So that smells like, kind of like calamari or something yeah, that you yeah, order, yeah. order in a restaurant. Mm. Wow. I don't know. I guess I assumed that by the time it sort of went through this process, it wouldn't necessarily have that smell still. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so for thousands of years, humans have been using ink to make ink. Kind of makes sense if you think about it. But what about other ways to use ink? Thinking about calamari got me hungry. So I knew what my next stop had to be. All right, I think these tomatoes are sufficiently stewy. Sounds good. The most common modern use of cephalopod ink is incorporating squid ink into food. The dark color and distinct flavor lends a unique touch to many dishes in Japan, Spain, and Italy. After encountering dry squid ink pasta in a grocery store, I wrote my friends Matt and Josie into cooking dinner with me. You guys should taste the um taste the pasta before we put stuff in it. Cool. Tell me what you think of it. It smells very fishy. Really? Mm-hmm. But also flowery. Oh, fancy. I don't know. I thought it would taste more like briny. Hmm. You know? Yeah, it tastes like pasta. That's my first impression. Yeah. Yeah. It it's tastes weird like pasta. It smells like fish. It tastes like pasta. Mm. I know what you mean. There's like a slight saltiness to the yeah. smell. Yeah. Well, we're keeping the flavors simple because A, we're lazy, <laughs> and B, we want to let the flavors of the squid ink shine. We prepared our pasta with cherry tomatoes, garlic, basil, lemon, and a sprinkling of red pepper flakes. The final product was visually striking, with the red tomatoes sharply contrasting the jet black pasta. As it turned out, the dark color was the most obvious, inky element of the dish, rather than the flavor itself. All right, what do you guys think? Turned out really well. It's really good. Mm -hmm. Does it taste distinctively inky? 
if I closed my eyes and didn't know, like I would not realize it was not non-squidding pasta. I think I would. I think oh, I'd really? Think I, um, I, I can't put my finger on it yet, but I do think there, it tastes a little bit different. Interesting. Traditional pasta. Yeah. Cool. Mm. Good work, team. It works, though. So, we've explored the aesthetic applications of ink through history, as well as its continued modern culinary applications. But its potential doesn't end there. Some recent studies have suggested that squid ink may have anti-carcinogenic properties. In 2010, a team of researchers from China published preliminary evidence that polysaccharide molecules in squid ink suppress tumor cell growth. They apparently do this by inhibiting a process called angiogenesis, which is crucial to the proliferation of cancerous tumors. To find out a little more about anti-angiogenic drugs, I spoke to Dr. Gina Foster, a medical oncologist currently pursuing a PhD in immunobiology at the Yale School of Medicine. So angiogenesis is, angio uh, refers to blood vessels and genesis refers to new, something new. Um, so if you think about what tumors are, so tumors are just our own cells and they have transformed in some way, they've made some sort of mistake and then they can grow out of control. And so in order for them to do that, they have to be able to support themselves. And so the one way that they do that is by making new blood vessels. So angiogenesis refers to tumors making new blood vessels to sustain their own growth. And so people figured this out a very long time ago, and so there have been multiple drugs actually uh, that have been designed to target angiogenesis in order to um, help patients with tumors. So, so drugs that inhibit angiogenesis therefore block tumors from sustaining their own blood vessels. That left me wondering how feasible it really is to derive a cancer treatment from colloid ink. I mean, surely all effective drugs are concocted synthetically in a lab somewhere, right? The source of different drugs that we use is actually quite broad. So there are uh, chemotherapy drugs that are derived from the bark of trees. There are chemotherapy drugs that are derived from... Um, Try to think antibiotics, which are naturally occurring. So, so the source of the actual drug um, can really vary. So, if squid ink is something that can potentially be modified, and and you know, usually what, what people do is they you know figure out what the protein sequence is, and then they can modify it in some way and get it into a form where it can actually be delivered to patients. And then, I, sure, it could potentially be given to patients. Why not? <laughs> so it's not like a totally impossible. Oh scenario. no, no, not at all. At this point, these results are very tentative. It's clear there's a lot left to work on here, but the research that's been conducted thus far seems promising. We may have a lot to learn from our tentacled friends about cancer prevention. Exploring the human applications of ink left me with a lot to chew on, and not just the leftover pasta in my fridge. I wanted to wrap up my research by investigating whether human uses of ink are having any effect on the health and sustainability of wild cephalopod populations, what if exploiting them for aesthetic, culinary, and medicinal purposes is actually endangering these species? Here's Mr. Lazo Wassum again. Anything is susceptible to overfishing, and in cephalopods, squid in particular, uh, well, in the Mediterranean, you, you certainly you have the octopus, they're, they're heavily fished, and certainly I believe I have read that you know, populations of things have declined because of, because of overfishing. And many places, and I think places are, are, are regulating it to a, to a certain degree. Squid populations, I mean, they get, you think of the amount of squid that is consumed, particularly in, in Asian countries. I mean, it's, it's, it's 
it's popular in the United States, but nowhere near as what's uh, being consumed in Asian in Asian countries. So I I certainly believe they're they're quite susceptible to localized overfishing, and the populations would certainly change. Mm-hmm. This made sense to me, and it was the answer I was expecting to hear. It's certainly true that some specific populations of certain cephalopod species are threatened right now. But after digging around a little bit, I learned that in many regions, coleoid populations are currently on the rise and have been for decades. Squid, octopi, and cuttlefish are well equipped to take advantage of changing ocean conditions. They are highly adaptable and often prefer warmer waters, so climate changes help them thrive. More importantly, overfishing has weakened populations of larger fish that prey on these species or compete with them for food. So what does the future look like? It's sort of fun to imagine a world completely taken over by coleoids. Oceans teeming with squid, octopi flooding our streets during hurricanes, or maybe that's just me. In all seriousness, exploding cephalopod populations probably aren't great for ecosystems in the long run. It's yet another instance of an ecological imbalance in our oceans, prompted by human behavior. So in the meantime, you can keep enjoying wild-caught squidding pasta free of guilt, and even try your hand at painting with sepia. I hope this episode has convinced you that cephalopod ink is, well, incredible. There's a lot left to learn about these remarkable creatures, and some of it may remain a mystery forever, or at least for another few hundred million years. Thanks for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Maya Juman, in fulfillment of the final project requirement for Dr. Casey Dunn's invertebrate zoology class. I'd like to thank Professor Dunn, Eric Lazo-Wassum, Susan Butts, Derek Briggs, Soyeon Choi, Gina Foster, Matthew Hack, and Josie Wilson. Factual information in this episode was drawn from interviews as well as publications by Charles Derby, Zoe Doubleday, Shiguo Chen, Fangping Li, Quan Guo Li, Anna Lopez Montes, and James Wood. The music in this episode is by Kevin McLeod, sourced from incompetech.com. A full list of references, along with original photographs and links to extra content, can be found on the podcast website, incrediblepod.wordpress.com. That's incredible with a K. Thanks again for tuning in.